the words of Allah and the words of His Rasul sallallahu alayhi wa sallam as being the very fountain and springhead and the foundation of his or her religion. No Muslim doubts that. No Muslim disputes it. And it would be wrong of anyone to accuse a Muslim of not wanting to follow the Qur'an and the Hadith. Of not wanting to follow Allah and His Rasul sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. I say that because unfortunately such, accus- such accusations abound. And without a further study of the question or the masala in hand, at times people are accused of abandoning the Qur'an, abandoning the Hadith, of not following the words of Allah and His Rasul sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. People are often accused of following the opinions of an individual or a man and not the teachings of Allah and His So it would be wrong for anyone, whether the those who are accusing are we ourselves, whether we ourselves accuse others, or others accuse us, regardless who is doing the accusing and who the victims of this accusation are, it's wrong to accuse someone of deliberately trying to abandon the Qur'an and abandon the Sunnah of the Rasul simply because we disagree with them. And especially if they are relying on alternative evidences from the Qur'an and the Hadith. Of course, if someone is blatantly going against the words of Allah and His Rasul sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, and quite openly and in a very flouting manner, dismissing the words of Allah and His Rasul sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, not on the basis of alternative evidence from the Qur'an and the Hadith themselves, but rather for other reasons, then that's a different story. But going back to what I was saying, we all accept, and this is what we believe about all Muslims, that every Muslim, man and woman, wants to obey Allah and His Rasul sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. He or she wants to follow the words of Allah and the words of His Rasul sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And therefore, we accept about ourselves and about everyone else, that we all hold the words of Allah and the words of His Rasul sallallahu alayhi wa sallam as being paramount and we view them as being the foundation of our religion. This goes without saying. So we all want to follow the Qur'an and the Hadith. Nobody doubts that or disputes that. But the biggest question is how do we actually go about following the Qur'an and the Hadith? And that's what we're here to discuss today. Is it possible to simply read the words of Allah and His Rasul sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, read the Qur'an or its translation, read the hadith or their translation, and come to our own understanding of these two primary sources of our religion, 
and apply our interpretation and our understanding of the Qur'an and belief in our lives? Is it really possible to do that? The classical ulama, all the way from the earliest times till today, the Sahaba of the the Tabi'in, those who follow the clear majority of the Ummah, the unanimous position of the entire Ummah, their words, their actions, their teachings, their approach to religion, their approach to understanding the Qur'an and the Hadith and applying it and interpreting it, all of the above suggests that's simply no. A person cannot just read the Qur'an and read the Hadith directly and come to a correct understanding, let alone a correct application of their religion. Let me give you some examples. So how do we actually understand the Qur'an and Hadith? This is where fiqh comes in. Fiqh is very important. It cannot be denied. Fiqh literally, linguistically means understanding. That's the original meaning of fiqh. And the meaning of fiqh in, the, in this context, the technical, terminological meaning of fiqh, the meaning of fiqh in the context of our discussion, is the deriving of laws and of the teachings of the Qur'an and Hadith from the primary sources. Inshallah, we'll understand more as we discuss for the next hour or so. But... Fiqh literally means understanding. And here it means, you may have heard various translations of the word fiqh. Fiqh can be translated as being Islamic law. The understanding of the primary sources of Islam, of the Qur'an and Hadith. Fiqh has also been translated as jurisprudence. All of these meanings are valid. And the meaning that I wish to convey of fiqh today in the context of our discussion, the role of fiqh in understanding the Qur'an and Hadith is as follows. That we cannot simply understand the Hadith directly or the Qur'an directly without resorting to various means, mechanisms, methods, and even without referring to the understanding and the interpretation of other people all the way from the Sahaba until today. Now let's look at the Holy Qur'an itself. Even more than the Hadith, Muslims agree that the Qur'an is the foundation, the fountainhead, the springhead, the origin, the source of our religion. No one doubts or disputes that. But how do we actually read and understand the hadith, the Qur'an, just the Qur'an? There are those who sadly detach the hadith from the Qur'an and they refuse to accept 
the validity of the hadith. They refuse to accept that the hadith is a primary source in Islam, in religion. And they argue that the Qur'an must be read alone and understood alone. And only the Qur'an can tell you what's actually halal and haram in Islam. What's actually obligatory or optional in Islam. And we often hear arguments being made and the evidence being put forth that does the Qur'an say anything about this? No, the Qur'an doesn't say anything about this, but the hadith do. In that case, we don't accept. It's only haram if the Qur'an says it's haram. It's only halal if the Qur'an says it's haram. It's only obligatory if the Qur'an says it's And sadly, this trend is actually on the rise. And more and more people are arguing. Obviously, there are various influences. But more and more people are arguing that we should detach the, anything else from the Qur'an. And only the Qur'an should be taken as a primary source of understanding and applying religion. But even this is fundamentally flawed. It's an inherently weak argument. In fact, it's self-defeating. Because that would reduce most of religion to something which is absolutely meaningless. Allow me to explain. The very people who say that we shouldn't accept the hadith, we should just rely on the Qur'an, the truth is they themselves cannot constitute their religion they cannot build up their own religion as they practice it from the Qur'an itself. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us to pray. But the manner and method of prayer are not contained in the Qur'an. They are not. In fact, quite clearly and categorically, without any ambiguity, without any... Ambiguity. It's very, very difficult to even establish the obligation of the five prayers from the Holy Quran and their times. Nowhere in the entire Quran does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala stipulate five prayers. Nowhere in the entire Quran. The word five is never mentioned in conjunction with the word prayer or even in the context of prayer. Not whatsoever. The times of prayer without ambiguity, clearly and categorically, are not established from the Holy Quran. And I say that because some of the ulama are wondering that no, there are some verses that speak about the times of prayer. But the truth is, I did say, without ambiguity, without reservation, without dispute. The reason is because those verses that speak about the times of prayer, some ulama actually said, because the wording is not very clear, there is no wording in the Qur'an that you must pray Maghrib Salah at sunset. You must pray Fajr Salah between the crack of dawn and sunrise. You must pray dhuhr salah, afternoon, till 
the beginning of Maghrib time, or the beginning of Asr time. So there is no such mention in the entire Quran. And therefore, it's still ambiguous. It's still unclear to some extent. This is for those people who argue that the Quran should alone be a source of understanding and application. So let's just take the first fundamental of religion, prayer. Even the prayer, of course there's a general obligation of prayer, but the times of prayer, the manner of prayer, the times, the style of prayer, the form and the mode of prayer, none of these are mentioned anywhere in the Quran. The four raka'at, how many raka'at do you pray? What do you pray in each raka'at? How do you pray? None of this is established. So, the most you learn from the Holy Quran categorically, without ambiguity, is that established prayer. And trust me, there will come a time when people will say, indeed, the Qur'an doesn't tell you how you have to actually pray. The Qur'an only says you should pray. And salah, the word salah, originally just meant supplication or prayer. And prayer can be in any form. You could raise your hands and pray to Allah. You could whisper a few words and pray to Allah. You could silently meditate at the end of the day and pray to Allah. You don't have to actually go through this ritual and this motion of rising, standing, reciting, bowing, prostrating. You don't have to go through our ritual. So where does it say in the Qur'an that you have to actually read Salah in this manner? Trust me, a time will come, is going to come. And we are already seeing signs of this when people will begin to argue that there is no such thing as namaz, as salah, as we understand it in the Qur'an. This is a later innovation and the truth is we will be fulfilling the obligation of prayer by any method, even though it may simply be silently meditating at the end of the day, lowering your head, talking to Allah, whispering a few words, or even silent meditation. And the, fulfill, and the obligation of salah, which originally means, even linguistically means, simply prayer will have been fulfilled and accomplished. So you cannot even get salah from the Holy Qur'an. The Qur'an tells us, we all, every Muslim knows about the obligation of remaining pure. Even before wudu, the complete obligation of remaining in the state of purity and performing ghusl, as we know it, we do not understand from the Holy Quran. The words are mentioned for Baha'u be extremely pure, but the manner in which that purification is to be achieved, even before prayer, cannot be unambiguously and categorically, undisputedly, Established from the Holy Quran. Same with zakah, same with hajj. A few laws are mentioned. Same with fasting, a few laws are mentioned. So, it's surprising that the people who argue that the Quran should alone be a source of understanding and application of religion, they themselves cannot constitute their religion. They cannot build up their religion as they themselves understand it and apply it today from the Qur'an itself. So if you were to ask them, 
Do you pray five times a day? They say, yes, of course, we pray religiously five times a day. Well, how do you pray? How do you understand the obligation of praying five times a day? How do you fix your times? Can you prove it from the Holy Quran? They will say no. So why do you do it then? Why bother praying? In this manner. What's your evidence? What's your proof of praying in this manner at these specific times? And their reply will be, well, this is what Muslims have been doing all along till today. Well, subhanAllah, when it suits you, you say, we must only refer to the Holy Qur'an. When you cannot find the evidence in the Holy Qur'an, since you are doing it, the argument is, well, this has always been the custom and the tradition of the Muslims from the beginning until today. Another way of looking at this is that how do we actually understand the Holy Qur'an? Can people truly understand the Qur'an as it should be understood just by reading its language, just by reading the Arabic? Again, a categorical moment. Sayyidina Abdullah ibn Abbas He described the Holy Qur'an and said that the Qur'an has four categories of understanding. The first category, and this is Abdullah ibn Abbas who, whose titles, his many titles, included the title Hibrul Ummah wa Tarjuman al Quran, meaning the scholar and sage of the entire Ummah and the interpreter of the Holy Quran. And that label wasn't given to him by a few individuals. That label was given to him by his fellow companions despite his young age. And the Prophet ﷺ placed his noble hand on the head of Abdullah ibn Abbas and prayed for him, saying, Allahumma O Allah, teach him the meaning and the interpretation of the Holy Quran. That's why exclusively and quite uniquely amongst the Sahaba Sayyidina Abdullah ibn Abbas had the title and the honor of being described as the Tarjuman al-Qur'an, the interpreter of the Holy Qur'an and as being the sage and the scholar of the Ummah, as being the exegete and the mufassir amongst the companions of the Allah And that's Abdullah ibn Abbas He himself describes the Holy Qur'an in terms of its understanding in four categories. The first category, the lowest, Abdullah ibn Abbas says that the first category of the Holy Qur'an is that everybody will understand these verses, this section, these portions of the Holy Qur'an. The first category and the first portion of the Qur'an, everybody understands. Whether you read it in Arabic or whether you read a translation. Verses such as, Allah is most forgiving, most merciful. Oh believers, do this, don't do this. When Allah speaks of these stories of the former prophets, Allah speaks and gives a graphic description and detail of life after death, of Jannah, of Jahannam, of such things. Everybody can understand this. Then there's another category. Sayyidina Abdullah ibn Abbas says, the second category of the Holy Qur'an, this second portion of the Qur'an is only understood by those who are familiar. Not only just familiar, but those who are familiar and quite fluent 
and learned in the Arabic language. That means even amongst the Arabs, there will be those who can understand the first category, but they cannot understand portions of the Qur'an, verses of the Qur'an belonging to the second category, despite being Arab, because the understanding of the second portion, second category of portions of the Qur'an requires a much more refined and a much more expert understanding of the Arabic language. And we see that in English as well. Most people would like to assume and believe of themselves that my language skills are good. However, pick up a book, even in the English language, which is, it doesn't have to be technical, because we're not, we haven't even reached that stage of being technical yet, but just the language is very flowery, poetic, very eloquent. The vocabulary is quite vast. Offer that book to someone who relatively is quite well versed in the English language and they might struggle to read and to understand such books. Even though they're not technical, it may just be simple prose and it may just be to do with everyday life. But you cannot understand it. Sometimes people may be reading a novel and they may not be able to understand an entire chapter, sorry, an entire paragraph. Not because it's technical, but because of the language and the vocabulary. So the same, Sayyidina Abdullah ibn Abbas says, there is a second portion of the Qur'an that cannot be understood unless a person is well versed and quite advanced and proficient in their knowledge of the Arabic language. And then Sayyidina Abdullah ibn Abbas says that there is a third category, and this third category is of those portions of the Qur'an that can only be understood by the ulama. Even if you are well-versed and proficient, and maybe even a poet and an expert in the Arabic language, you cannot understand those portions of the Qur'an unless you are a scholar with thick, with understanding, with technical expertise, and with very profound knowledge. And then he says there is a fourth category containing those verses of the Qur'an that only Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows their truth. So Sayyidina Abdullah ibn Abbas described four categories and four portions of the Holy Qur'an. Now, let's look at some of those. Can a person understand the Qur'an just by reading it? We're not even talking about an English translation here. We're talking about the Arabic language, especially today. Today, Arabic is very different to the Arabic of the Holy Qur'an. It is. One, for one, the Arabic language today has been broken up into many different dialects, many colloquial dialects, all across the Arab world, to the extent that sadly, some parts of the Arab world cannot even understand, let alone speak, they cannot even understand the dialect of other parts of the Arab world. There are various people who are actually calling for an introduction of new dictionaries in some of these Arab countries. New dictionaries for the colloquial language 
And they are calling for these dictionaries to be introduced and to be given a name, not of the Arabic language, but to be given the name of a dictionary for the local language, i.e. the Arabic has changed and developed and morphed into so much into another dialect and almost another language that people are calling for in- dictionaries to be introduced, not with the name of the Arabic language, but with the name of the new local dialect, i.e. this is a completely new language. Even the literal Arabic that is written and read and broadcast, often known as MSA, Modern Standard Arabic, Modern Standard Arabic differs a lot from the classical Arabic of the Holy Quran, without doubt. And anyone who suggests that you can just learn Modern Standard Arabic and then understand the Quran thoroughly and fully is misleading. Even the style, the nuances, the, the manners of the modern standard Arabic language are all very different from classical Arabic. And forget us today. Also, today you still have to be a scholar, a, a proficient scholar of the Arabic language to be able to understand the Holy Quran thoroughly. And let's move away from modern standard Arabic. Let's go back all the way to the time of Revelation. To the time of the Sahaba Is there, was there, has there ever been anyone more accomplished, more capable, and in a better position to understand the Holy Quran than the Sahaba Has there ever been anyone? Would anyone argue with that? That the people most suited to understand the Holy Quran were the noble companions of the Prophet no one can argue with that. Why? First of all, there wasn't such a great tradition. Of course, there was still a tradition, but it wasn't widespread. It wasn't prolific. There was not a widespread and prolific tradition of writing and reading amongst the Arabs. They relied more on memory. Theirs was more an oral and a verbal tradition. So the Sahaba, they did not have in their time this distinction that we find in many languages throughout the world, a distinction and a difference between the written word and the spoken word. Let's look at the language here. I'm sure you will all agree, unless you tell me otherwise, that the language that you see every day in your homes, at the workplace, in your social gatherings, with your children, with your families, amongst friends, in a very casual, relaxed manner. Is that the same language that's actually printed and read and broadcast and exchanged formally? Is it? Is that the same style? Is it? Or is there a difference between the written word and the spoken word? Without that, that's true all over the world for the English language. It's true almost for every single language. Of course, the variation and the difference, well, the difference between the written word and the spoken word varies from language to language. But almost all languages suffer from this difference in distinction between the spoken word and the written word. Classical Arabic didn't. Not even an iota. The classical Arabic 
at the time of the Prophet ﷺ was so pure that the Holy Qur'an was actually revealed in the same language that they spoke amongst themselves. The language, word for word, style for style, that the children spoke amongst themselves whilst playing on the streets and running around their tents and their camps. The language that the Arab Bedouin shared in their night camps and in the deserts. The language of both love and anger between friends and family members, between spouses and parents and children. The language of their table sweat, the language of their formal meetings, the language of their informal, relaxed social gatherings, the language of their poetry, all of this was identical and the Holy Quran was revealed in that same language, exactly the same. To give you an example, Sayyidina Umar ibn Khattab He learned from his daughter, well, one day he learned from his wife that his daughter, Hafsa, along with the other wives of the Prophet, in their rivalry, in their natural jealousy and rivalry, and in that relationship between the husband and the wife, sometimes they would speak to the Prophet in a manner which. Sayyidina Umar ibn al-Khattab deemed inappropriate. So one day, when he learns from his wife, she said, Oh Umar, are you surprised that I speak to you like this? Your daughter speaks like this to the Prophet And so do the other wives. Sayyidina Umar immediately said, In that case she has perished. And he immediately left the home and went to the house of his daughter, Hafsa. And addressing his daughter, he said to her, in Arabic, just in anger, he entered the home and he said, Oh Hafsa, time and time again I have warned you, do not speak to the Prophet inappropriately, you and the other wives. You are not careful and you are not cautious about how you speak to and address the Holy Messenger wasallam. He is a Prophet of Allah, or Hafsa. And he just said this as a father advising his daughter in anger, in passion, quite naturally and spontaneously. Sayyidina Umar said to his daughter, verbatim, word for word, Asa Rabbuhu in Tallaqakun, and Yubdilahu Azrajan Khairun min Kun, Muslimatin, Mu'minatin, Qamitatin, Ta'ibatin, Abidat, Sa'ihatin, Tayyibatin, Wa'abkara. He said, Oh Hafsa, it is highly possible that if he divorces you, then his Lord, referring to the Prophet, if the Prophet divorces you, then his Lord, will replace you, all of you, with wives who are far better than you, who will be believing Muslim, who will be Muslims, who will be Mu'minat, believing, Qanidat, who will be worshipping and obedient, Ta'ibat, who will be repentant, Abidat, who will be worshipping, Salihat, 
who will be fasting, thinking about him of Gara, both previously married as well as previously unmarried. Sayyidina Umar just spoke very spontaneously and naturally in his passion and in his anger and concern for the welfare of his daughter. He imparted his advice and then he left. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, a short while later, whilst delivering a warning to the wives of the Prophet وسلم, and specifically to Hafsa and Aisha anhuma, and also in general to all of the wives in Surah Al-Tahrim, Allah Azza wa Jal, as part of his advice and his warning, he revealed a verse of the Holy Qur'an that was a verbatim, word for word, letter for letter, quotation of the advice of Sayyidina Umar ibn al-Khattab Imagine, what Sayyidina Umar said spontaneously, as a passionate plea to his daughter, Allah Azzawajal revealed those words exactly, word for word, letter for letter, verbatim in the Holy Qur'an to be recited till the day of judgment. And that's a verse of the Holy Qur'an, Surah Al-Tahrim. عَسَى رَبُّهُ إِنْ تَلَّقَقُنَّ أَنْ يُبْذِلَهُ أَزْوَاجٌ خَيْرٌ مِنْ كُنْ مُسْلِمَاتٌ مُؤْمِنَاتٌ قَامِتَاتٌ تَائِبَاتٌ عَابِدَاتٌ سَاحِحَاتٌ تَيِّبَاتٌ مُؤَبْكَارًا I related this to illustrate that the natural language of their everyday life was the language of the Holy Qur'an. That's exactly how the children would speak to each other. So there was no distinction between the written word and the spoken word. What they spoke in their tents, in their homes, between friends, between children, that is exactly the language of the Holy Quran. Now, who was better? Who was better suited? Who was more capable of understanding the Holy Quran than the Sahaba Allah Yet did they understand it always? Or did they have to refer to Rasulullah And this leads us to that crucial question. Could they understand the Quran directly? Or did they have to resort to another authority? Did they have to refer to someone else? Of course, they could not understand the Quran directly. They, despite their knowledge and their Arabic language, they had to refer to the Prophet on numerous occasions. On numerous occasions. To give you an example, while speaking of fasting and when to stop eating and when to begin the fast, Allah Azza wa Jalla says, "Akulu wa shrabu hatta yatabiyan alakum al-khayt al-abyad min al-khayt al-aswad min al-fajr." Then Ma'atim al-siyam ila al-layl. Allah says, "Eat and drink, continue to eat and drink until the wine thread becomes visible and distinct to you from the black thread." Then, when that happens, complete your fast till the night. One of the companions, Ali ibn Hatim was a companion. He understood the language. He came and informed the Prophet that, Ya Rasulullah, in order to determine when I should stop eating and drinking and when I should begin my fast, what I did is I took two threads, one black thread and one white thread. And this report is contained in authentic narrations. And then I placed them on my pillow. And I kept on observing throughout the night until I saw enough light, until there was enough light for me to be able to distinguish between the black thread and the white thread. So the Prophet smiled at him and said, Oh Ali, 
That is not the meaning of the verse of the Qur'an. In the Wasabah, in that case, indeed your pillow must be very, very wide. Because that's not what Allah refers to in the Qur'an. And then the Prophet ﷺ explained that the white thread refers to the white thread of the crack of dawn. And not the one that runs vertically along the sky, but the one that runs horizontally across the sky. Not the crack of false dawn, but the crack of true dawn. A white thread that spreads across the horizon horizontally. And the Prophet uses noble arms and motion in this manner. And then he explained that this is the original, this is the true meaning and the correct understanding of the verse. Adi ibn was a very senior, old, very learned, very poetic and wise Arab. And yet, he could not understand the verse of Quran properly. He had to refer to the Prophet. Sayyidina Abu Bakr Siddiq, who was so learned, so poetic, so eloquent that he was a poet in his own right, he was a famous interpreter of dreams and a poet, extremely eloquent. Once, to describe his eloquence, once there was a rival, or well, there was a verbal argument between two wives of the Prophet sallallahu came, one of the wives of the Prophet sallallahu came, and she began abusing Umm al-Mu'mineen Aisha anha. So the Prophet sallallahu withdrew from the contest and allowed them to continue. And he motioned to Aisha that you can reply to her, I'll give you that chance. So anha verbally said whatever she wanted to, then Umm al-Mu'mineen Aisha anha replied, and she was silent. So the Prophet sallallahu commenting on the outcome of this contest, merely said, after all, she is the daughter of Abu Bakr. I mean, that shows the eloquence and the verbal power of Sayyidina Abu Bakr Siddiq who was renowned for his verbal abilities, for his poetry, for his eloquence. Say the same Sayyidina Abu Bakr Siddiq was asked by someone that, Oh Abu Bakr, Allah says in the Holy Quran, وَفَاكِحْتُمْ وَأَبَّرُ لَكُمْ Allah says, Now we know what, I know what fatiha is. That's fruit. But what does abba mean? On that occasion, Sayyidina Abu Bakr al-Siddiq for some reason, did not know the meaning of abba. And he was asked by someone, that Abu Bakr, we understand wafaqiha. But well, we don't understand the meaning of Abba. What's Abba? Imagine a three-letter word. A three-letter word. Abba. Sayyidina Abu Bakr radiallahu reply, what was it? Was it like some of us venture today? In my opinion, I think, I believe, my understanding, my deduction, my research. No. This was Sayyidina Abu Bakr as-Siddiq radiyallahu the first Khalifa of the Muslims, the father-in-law of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, the most 
towering figure amongst the companions, and the greatest Muslim without exception, without doubt, and undisputedly after Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, Sayyidina Abu Bakr radiallahu reply was, أَيُّ السَّمَاءِ تُظِلُّنِي وَأَيُّ أَرْضٍ تُقِلُّنِي إِنْ أَقُلْ فِي كِتَابِ اللَّهِ مَا لَا أَعْلَمْ Which heaven will shelter me and which earth shall bear me if I speak about the Holy Qur'an without knowledge? That was Sayyidina Abu Bakr as-Siddiq radiyallahu anhu. Despite his knowledge, his proficiency in Arabic, his poetic nature and his eloquence, he at that time, for some occasion, did not know what the word Abba meant. Sayyidina Abu Bakr radiyallahu anhu didn't say anything. Another occasion, Imam Bukhari and Imam Muslim rahmatullah, both relate in their sahih. From Sayyidina Abdullah ibn Masood who says that when the verse of the Holy Quran, لَمَّا نَزَلَتْ أَلَّذِينَ آمَنُوا وَلَمْ يَلْبِسُوا إِيمَانَهُمْ بِالظُّلْمِ أُولَٰئِكَ لَهُمْ الْأَمْنُ وَأُمُّ الْتَذُونَ When the verse, أَلَّذِينَ آمَنُوا وَلَمْ يَلْبِسُوا إِيمَانَهُمْ بِالظُّلْمِ was revealed by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the words of the hadith are from Sayyidina Abdullah ibn Masood radiyallahu anhu, shakka dhalika ala al-Muslimin. When the verse, alladheena amanu wa lam yalbisu imanahum bidhulm was revealed, shakka dhalika ala al-Muslimin, this bore down heavily and became a burden upon the believers. Why did it become a burden? The meaning of the verses, Allah says in the Holy Quran, alladheena amanu, those who have believed, وَلَمْ يَلْبِسُوا And who have not polluted, إِمَامَهُمْ Their faith, بِذُلْمْ With ظُلْمْ With injustice and with wrongdoing. Because that's the original meaning of ظُلْمْ Although commonly we believe it today to mean oppression, ظُلْمْ originally means any act of injustice. In fact, not even just injustice. ظُلْمْ means wrongdoing. So when the verse of the Qur'an was revealed, those who have believed and who have not polluted their faith with dhulm, with wrongdoing, then these are the ones, لَهُمْ who shall have security. And these are the ones who are rightly guided. So when this verse was revealed, Abdullah ibn Masood radiallahu anhu says, شَقَّ ذَلِكَ عَلَى الْمُسْلِمِينَ This became very unbearable and difficult upon the believers. وَقَالُوا And they all said, أَيُّنَا مِنْ يَظْلِ who amongst us has not wronged his soul? Who amongst us has not committed a wrongdoing? Who amongst us has not been unjust to himself? So they all went to the Prophet ﷺ. Did one or two people go? Were one or two people concerned about this verse? No. Abdullah says, This bore down heavily upon the Muslims. He uses a plural term. So they went to the Prophet ﷺ and they said, Ya Rasulullah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has revealed this verse of the Qur'an, الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا وَلَمْ يَلْبِسُوا إِيمَانَهُمْ بِذُلْمِ That those who have believed and who have not contaminated their faith with wrongdoing, these are the ones who shall have security, and these are the ones who are rightly guided, O Prophet of Allah. أَيُّنَا لَمْ يَظْلِمْ نَفْسًا Who is that amongst us who has not wronged his soul? So the Prophet ﷺ said, No. This is not what Allah is referring to. This is not what Allah means. Have you not read the verse of the Holy Quran where Allah quotes Luqman salam advising his son? Oh my son, do not ascribe any partner or associate anything with Allah 
Indeed, idolatry is a great injustice and is a great wrongdoing and dhulm. So Rasulullah said, This is the dhulm that Allah is referring to, meaning, Those who have believed and who have not contaminated their faith with shirk, with idolatry, then these are the ones who have found guidance. These are the ones who will have security, and these are the rightly guided. Rasulullah had to comfort and console all of the Muslims and explain to all of them that collectively your understanding of a simple word in a single verse of the Quran was incorrect. It took the Messenger of Allah to clarify for them and to explain to them. I guess we could go on, but just these three incidents should explain, should prove categorically that even the Sahaba in order to understand the Holy Qur'an, they had to resort to the authority and the interpretation and the explanation of Rasulullah despite their Arabic, their proficiency in the Arabic language and their eloquence and their intelligence and ability, they could not rely on their own understanding and interpretation of the Holy Qur'an. SubhanAllah. If, that, if, if this was the case with the Sahaba, the noble companions, despite their eloquence and their language and their proficiency in Arabic and despite sharing exactly the same language as the Holy Qur'an, can we imagine us today with our deficient understanding and with our poor language skills, reading the Quran directly, whether it's in Arabic or in an interp- or in, in a language, in another language, a translated language, and actually understanding and interpreting and applying the Quran properly and correctly? Of course not. Without doubt. It cannot be done. Furthermore, we have to understand the manner in which the Quran was revealed to the Ummah and was sent down to us. If Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wish, Allah could have revealed the Quran to the Sahaba in a book form. In fact, this is what the people of Arabia were demanding. The Quraysh of Makkah were demanding that reveal a Quran, bring down a Quran in book form. A book that we can touch, whose covers we can fear. Bring down a book from the heavens on paper, with ink, with bound covers. A book that we can touch and feel. The people of Quraysh demanded this. When the Prophet ﷺ went to Medina, the people of the book demanded this. And the people of the book demand from you, they ask of you that you bring down a book for them from the heavens. So all the people of Arabia, the Quraysh, the pagan Arabs, the people of the book, they all demanded that the Prophet ﷺ not suffice with reciting the Quran verbally to them, but to actually bring them a book in book form with ink, with paper, and bound by covers. That was their demand. Yet Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala never acceded to their demands. Allah refused to do so. Blankly refused. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had a plan in mind and He revealed the Qur'an accordingly. And what was that plan? That plan was to reveal the Qur'an through a chain of transmission 
a chain of narration, through a chain of authorities, so that it could be passed down reliably, properly, in the correct manner. And so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala did not even reveal the Qur'an directly to the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Do you know that? He did not reveal the Qur'an directly to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. He revealed it through the medium of Jibreel alayhi wa Even the first verses, how were they revealed? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala kept the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam unlettered. How was the Qur'an revealed? In his dream? No. Prophet sallallahu went to the mountain. He meditated and worshipped and prayed to Allah in the cave of Hira. Eventually, when Jibreel came to him, did he just say, Oh Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has revealed this book to you? No. He said to him, Iqra, read. Prophet sallallahu relates this hadith right at the beginning of his book. Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa replied, Ma'ana biqari, I am not one to read. Jibreel alayhi salatu wasalam hugged the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa and crushed him. The words of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa are in the hadith, Hatta balagha minni al-juhd. Until Jibreel alayhi salatu wasalam took me to the limits of my endurance, until I would not tolerate or bear it anymore. Then he released me. And then he said, read. I said, I am not one to read. Jibreel alayhi salatu again hugged me and crushed me to the extent and to the limits of my endurance. And then he released me and said, read. I said, I am not one to read. And he did this three times. Eventually, when he released him, he said, read. And then he didn't, tell, he didn't wait for the Prophet sallallahu to reply that, I cannot read. What shall I read? He categorically told him, read. And the Prophet miraculously began reading. You know, the tradition of Islam is not to read, not to learn simply by reading books and relying on books directly. Or even to just read, forget the whole Quran, not even other books, let alone the Quran. And let me give you an example. Some people may find it surprising that we have children in the madrasa and these children sit in front of the teachers and the teacher says to them, read, read as I read to you, Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen Ar-Rahman Ar-Rahim. Some people, and they have, they've objected to this and they said, look at these people in this modern day of technology science age, the computer age, the space age, the age of nanotechnology, the age of artificial intelligence. In this day and age, you still have these mullahs teaching Muslims in a medieval manner. They make the children sit in front of them, and then the teacher says, Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen, and the child says, Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. Why don't they progress and advance? Why not use more interactive methods? Why not keep pace with advancing technology and get rid of this medieval method? Do you know that's exactly the, the way a child learns with the teacher? In, I'm not just compare, comparing the child, but the way, the manner in which that learning is imparted and that teaching is conducted. 
That's the manner in which the Prophet ﷺ received the Holy Qur'an. And if you don't believe me, Abdullah ibn Abbas relates in the Hadith of Bukhari that the Prophet ﷺ, when he would receive the revelation from Jibreel ﷺ, the Prophet ﷺ would quickly read whilst Jibreel ﷺ was reading. So, the Prophet ﷺ would read whilst Jibreel was reading, and then Abdullah ibn Abbas demonstrated to the companions and to his students that the Prophet, the Prophet ﷺ was reading exactly as I read to you. And then Abdullah ibn Abbas began reading under his breath. Just moving his lips to demonstrate the manner in which the Prophet ﷺ would read. And that's exactly how he would do it. Whilst Jibreel was reading, the Prophet ﷺ would quickly read along with him under his own breath. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala told the Prophet ﷺ, as is mentioned in the Holy Quran, لا تحرك به لسانك لتعجل به إن علينا جمعه وقرآنه فإذا قرأناه فاتبع قرآنه ثم إن علينا بيانه Allah says to the Prophet ﷺ, O Prophet of Allah, do not move your lips, do not move your tongue, so that you may make haste with the Qur'an. No, إن علينا, don't worry. You will not lose the Qur'an, we understand. I'm just paraphrasing, this isn't the translation, I'll translate it again. But the meaning is, O Prophet of Allah, we know that you are very eager to see the Qur'an preserved in your heart. But O Prophet of Allah, do not make haste in following the recitation of Jibreel out of fear of losing the Qur'an. Don't worry, let Jibreel read. You don't have to follow him in his reading along with him. In the fear that the Qur'an will escape you and you will lose the words and you won't be able to preserve the Qur'an in your heart. No, O Prophet of Allah. Do not move your tongue with the, so that you may make haste with the Qur'an. Indeed, it is upon us, it is our obligation and duty to gather the Qur'an, i.e. in your hearts. And it is our duty to recite the Qur'an too. So when we have read the Qur'an, who's we? Meaning when Jibreel has read the Qur'an on my behalf to you, when we have read the Qur'an, then you follow the recitation of Jibreel. In that manner, Jibreel would read, he would teach, and the Prophet would listen attentively. Once Jibreel had completed the recitation, then the Prophet would recite. That that's the manner in which the Holy Messenger received the Holy Quran through a medium, through a teacher, Jibreel through a chain of transmission. And then the Prophet ﷺ did exactly the same with the Sahaba anhum. He taught them the Holy Qur'an. However, it wasn't just the words that he taught them. What does Allah say here? Allah doesn't say, we will preserve the Qur'an in your heart and then leave everybody to it. No. Allah says, it is our duty to collect the Qur'an in your heart and it is our duty to recite the Qur'an to you. Then, when we have recited, you follow its recitation. Then indeed, it is upon us, it is an obligation, duty upon us to explain and clarify 
the Qur'an for you. So not only have the words come from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, but the meaning and the translate, the meaning and the interpretation and the understanding of the Holy Qur'an has also come from Allah Azza wa Jalla in conjunction with the words, both the words and their meaning. Both the text of the Qur'an as well as its interpretation have come from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And not even directly to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, but rather through Jibreel alayhi salatu wa salam, to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, and then from Jibreel alayhi salatu wa salam, to the Sahaba radiallahu anhu. From them, not just in books distributed to everyone, all and sundry for them to read and understand, no, under the direct care, monitoring, supervision, the tutelage, and the mentoring of teachers, of learned scholars, this is how the tradition of Islam, of learning in Islam, has continued till this day. This is why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَمَا كُنْتَ تَتْلُوا مِنْ قَبْهِ مِنْ كِتَابٍ وَلَا تَخُطُّهُ بِيَمِينِكِ إِذَا لَرْتَابٌ مُقْطِلُونَ بَلْ هُوَ آيَاتٌ بَيِّنَاتٌ فِي صُدُورِ الَّذِينَ أُوتُ الْعِلْمِ وَمَا يَجْحَدُ بِآيَاتِنَا إِلَّا الظَّالِمُونَ Allah says, O Prophet of Allah, you were not one to recite, sorry, you were not one to read books or to write with your right hand before this, meaning you are unlettered. If that was the case, then those who wish to spread falsehood would have surely doubted the authenticity of the Qur'an. Nay, Nay, the Qur'an is a collection of clear verses. Where? In books? No. In the bosoms and the hearts of those people who have been given knowledge. Ilm in Islam has come down, not so much from book to book, but from heart to heart. And that's why Jibreel when he met the Prophet he didn't just say, Iqra' read, thrice he hugged him. And the ulama say the reason is, so that the knowledge from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that Jibreel carried could be conveyed from the heart of Jibreel to the heart of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. That's why he hugged him thrice before he imparted to him the first verse of the Holy Quran. That's the tradition of learning. Once we understand that tradition of learning, it becomes quite clear that you cannot just read the Holy Quran by itself in isolation. Whether it's in Arabic or in a translation and understand it correctly, no. There is, we have to resort and refer to the interpretation and the explanation from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that has been passed down through Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa along with the text. And that's what the Sahaba radiallahu anhum did and that's how they conveyed it to us. The Sahaba radiallahu anhum didn't just then rely on the Qur'an, they rely on the teaching of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Now this leads us to the second part, which is okay, we accept that the hadith must be understood in conjunction with the Holy Qur'an, and the Holy Qur'an cannot be understood in isolation and detached from everything else. But why do we need to progress any further? Why not just rely on the Qur'an and the hadith? Surely that's sufficient. Well, subhanAllah. If the Qur'an is that complex, and if the words of Rasulullah subhanahu wa ta'ala cannot be understood, even though they are only approximately 6,000 verses, then how can one understand the hadith of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam when there are thousands upon thousands of hadith? How can one understand the words of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam? The Qur'an and the hadith are not that easy. This is where fiqh comes in. Fiqh means a refined and derived understanding 
of the Quran. If one cannot establish the prayer from the Holy Quran by itself, how can you do it from the Hadith? It, the knowledge is scattered everywhere. Furthermore, let me tell you something else, and this is very important. The truth is, you know when you come across a hadith, even though it may be authentic, that hadith ultimately is one person's narration from another individual, from another individual, from another individual, from a companion from Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. True? Imam Malik who is the most senior now things get a bit technical because obviously we're discussing fiqh and hadith. Imam Malik who was one of the most senior imams of hadith and of ijtihad and fiqh. Imam Malik was one of the first people to compile a book of hadith. His book of hadith is known as the Muwatta. Imam Shafi'i would say, that the most authentic book after the book of Allah is the Muwatta of Imam Malik Many people ask that, well, that was because Imam Shafi'i had not yet seen Sahih al-Bukhari and uh, Bukhari had not been produced. But no, the, re- the thing is, of course, yes. But, do you know Sahih al-Bukhari contains the whole of Muwatta? Bukhari contains the whole of the Muwatta of Imam Malik. So it's a bit strange to argue that the Muwatta of Imam Malik is not the most authentic book after the book of Allah, but Bukhari is the most authentic book after the book of Allah, when actually Muwatta forms part of the book of Bukhari. Imam Malik had many sheets. And they will all record and relate his muwatta. And in total, Imam Malik as part of his muwatta, he has only approximately 700 marfur narrations and hadith that stretch back directly from him with an uninterrupted chain of transmission to Rasulullah The number is approximately 700. And because he had so many scholars narrating from him, the versions vary, but in essence they are approximately 700. Those 700 narrations are to be found in Bukhari itself. So one could argue that the Muwatta of Imam Malik is the most authentic book after the book of Allah, just as Imam Shafi'i rahmatullahi said. And then added to the Muwatta of Imam Malik, which is contained in Sahih al-Bukhari, the other hadith are also the most authentic uh, narrations that we have after the book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So, Imam Malik who was a towering scholar, who had the Muwatta, one of the first books on collections of hadith, Imam Malik would say that Alfun an Alfin Ahabu Ilayna Min Wahidin an Wahidin. A thousand from a thousand is more beloved to us and better in our view than one from one. Do you know what that means? This means that when you have a hadith, and this is Imam Malik himself, Imam Malik says, 
Imam Nafi' related to me from Abdullah ibn Umar radiallahu anhuma from the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam that is an uninterrupted chain of transmission and a hadith stretching from Imam Malik to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam Nafi' related to me from Abdullah ibn Umar radiallahu anhuma from Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam how many people are there in this chain of narration one Imam Nafi' relating from one Abdullah ibn Umar True. So this is what he means that on the one hand you have a hadith related from one person related from one person above him. On the other hand, I have the practice of the people of Medina. All of the people of Medina, scholars and laity alike, they all adopt a certain practice. This is known as the amal of the people of Medina the convention and the habits of the people of Medina. Now, this one single narration apparently contradicts the practice of all of the people of Medina. Which of the two should I take? And that's why Imam Malik Rahmatullahi says, a thousand from a thousand. Because ultimately, when people relate a practice and continue a practice and a convention and a habit, then they are inheriting that practice from those above them. And not one person, and not two people, but if the entire city of Medina was inheriting a, a certain practice, let's say, a manner in which to pray Salah. So thousands of people in the city of Medina, laity and leadership and scholars alike, were all imitating and inheriting a certain practice from those above them, from those above them. Ultimately, that is a narration. And a single hadith is also a narration. But a single hadith is from one person, from one person. But the people, the practice of all of Medina is a practice that has been narrated and transmitted by a thousand from a thousand from a thousand, or thousands from thousands. So Imam Malik would say that the practice of the people of Medina is dearer to us than a single report, even though that report may be extremely authentic. And it, to, in order to understand that, imagine all of you here on, on this island. If someone travels from here and goes to, a, goes to another country, and he relates that all of the people of Trinidad they, they do things in this way. All of the people, they do things in this way. And this is what... No, he doesn't just relate what everybody does, but he says, I went to the island, and one person informed me that his father said this to him, or his teacher said this to him. How many people are narrating? One person and one person. Imagine if that person then comes here and sees that everybody is doing something else. So you say, one minute, I've been informed by this reliable person. Now that person may be extremely reliable. Who related from his teacher, who himself was extremely reliable, that this was the case many years ago and this is what everybody used to do. However, the person says, that's one single narration of what I'm witnessing and what everybody is reporting. In practice, it's complete, something else altogether. 
This is the practice of the people of the city. What should I take? Should I rely on a single report from one person, from one person, or should I rely on the practice as is transmitted by thousands across the city? That's exactly what Imam Malik did. And not just Imam Malik, but all across the Muslim world, this is what the Sahaba and the students of the Sahaba did. This is where fiqh comes in. This is where fiqh came from. Fiqh was built, the understanding of Islamic law and the interpretation of Islamic law and Islamic jurisprudence. All of this was recorded in books and documented. Not because of one person's narration from another person, from one other person, but this was all documented according to the prevalent practice of all of the people of the city. That's why the fiqh of Imam Abu Hanifa, contrary to widespread opinion, wasn't just the opinion of Imam Abu Hanifa. The fiqh of Imam Abu Hanifa, the Hanafi fiqh, is actually the fiqh and the practice of the people of all of Iraq. And Iraq was the main capital and the main area and region of the Islamic Empire at the time. All the practice of the main cities of Kufa and of Basra and then eventually of Baghdad and of all the people of Iraq that became, that evolved into the documented Hanafi fiqh as we see it today. So for him, if you had one report, one hadith says that oh, the Prophet did this or prayed or practiced in a certain way and that's reported by one person and then reported by another person why, how come this one single, trans, one single narration is contrary to the popular practice of the Hanafi fiqh? Are they following the opinion of one man? No. The reason is that this practice of praying or doing something in a certain manner has been documented based on the practice of all the ulama and all the leading imams and all the leading students of the Sahaba in the whole of Iraq, in the cities of Basra and Kufa and eventually Baghdad. But mainly, principally, Kufa and Basra. Thousands of Sahaba عنهم, the leading Sahaba عنهم, moved to Iraq. Imam Sayyidina Ali عنهم, transferred the whole of the Khilaf from al Madinah al Munawwarah to Kufa in Iraq. Sayyidina Umar ibn Khattab he established the city of Kufa. It was established under his rule and command. And he sent some of the leading Sahaba عنهم, eventually. Kufa was populated by approximately 1,500 Sahaba 1,500 leading Sahaba all of their practice across the whole city was documented by their students and eventually their students and this evolved into and developed into the Hanafi fiqh as we understand it this was the same with the Maliki fiqh the Maliki fiqh wasn't the opinion of Imam Malik rather Imam Malik and his students documented what they witnessed as being the widespread practice of all of the people of the city of Medina. In this way, this is how fiqh eventually developed. We've run out of time and I'll end here. But the lesson is that ultimately we cannot understand the Qur'an and the Hadith directly just by reading them in their Arabic or by depending on their translations. Rather, the Qur'an and the Hadith, are. this is raw information. The raw information needs to be processed and refined. And that's what fiqh is. 
fiqh is is the eventual refined and distilled version of information that is readily accessible and understandable to all people. How do you pray salah? You won't be able to find that from the Qur'an directly. You won't be able to gather that information yourself, or even us as a whole group, from the collection of hadith. Rather, we have to rely on that for that, we have to rely on the experts. And the experts will distill all of that information, refine it, and they will simply tell us, without going into the technical details, that when you want to pray salah, you stand up, you face the qibla, this is what you say, you say Allahu Akbar, you make the intention, you say Allahu Akbar, this is what you recite, this is how you pray. This collective information of the procedure of salah, you, I, us put together, a whole group put together, it would be almost impossible for us to discover this and to categorize it and to place it in the correct category and in the correct order and in the true correct chronological order. We would, it would be almost impossible for us to achieve that. This is fiqh. It's a distilled, refined information of the Qur'an and hadith that this is what you need to do practically in your everyday life. I'll end just by mentioning one thing. Fiqh is also relying on the... We all want to follow the Qur'an and Hadith, without doubt. But how do we go about it? We cannot do it ourselves. We ultimately have to rely on the expertise of the experts. We have to refer to the authority of the experts. We do that in every field, except for Islam. You want to fix your car? You don't take out a spanner and endanger your family's life by picking up a manual reading a few articles on the internet and then fiddling around with your engine and then placing your family and your children in your car and going off for a drive? No. If you are ill, if your child is ill, you will not risk picking up a few manuals from your bookshelf or googling something on the internet and relying on some hotch-potch medicine from some uh, quack claiming to be a medical expert. No. You will dismiss all your medical pretensions. You will. And you will go even to a non-Muslim stranger and doctor. You don't know him. But you will go to him. And merely because of his label and because of his certificate, you will place your child's life in his care, in his trust and in his hands and say, this is wrong with my child, help me. And if he says, take this tablet... You don't know what that tablet contains or what are its origins, but you trust and you refer to the authority of one who is superior to you in learning. You refer to the expertise of the expert. You defer to his authority and you accept his medication and you administer that medication. We do it in medicine. You have the right, I don't know about the law here, but I guess because it's based on the legacy uh, of, of British law, as under British law, and as many courts throughout the world, you have a right to represent yourself in court. You do. But what will most people do? They won't risk. They won't take that risk. They will rely on the expertise of a barrister, a lawyer, a legal advocate, and representative. Of course, in every field, be it mechanics, be it medicine, be it electricity, be it water, be it drainage, be it simple things in life, 
No matter how intelligent we like to think ourselves as being, we will always refer to the authority in that field, we will always defer to that authority, we will always rely on the expertise of the experts. SubhanAllah. Except for poor Islam, except for poor Quran and Hadith, where everyone is an expert except the experts. Everyone is an expert except the experts. That's where fiqh comes in. We rely on the fuqaha. We rely on the jurists. We rely on the scholars. We rely on the authorities. We defer to their authority and we rely on the expertise of the experts. Our iman, our religion, our salah, all of this is far more valuable and far more precious and far more delicate and far more vulnerable and susceptible to misinterpretation than even our own health or the engine of our car. If we rely on the expertise of the experts and we defer to the authority of those who are superior in learning and in expertise in every field and discipline, why can't we do that when it comes to the Qur'an and Hadith? Why do we attempt to access raw information of the Qur'an and Hadith? Because that is raw information. It's unrefined, it's unprocessed. We cannot understand it, let alone interpret it. This is a vast topic. The truth is, this requires many, many, many sessions. Each session dedicated to just one aspect of this topic. But I've gone well over my time, and I sincerely apologize for that. I hope and pray that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grants us the ability, and, sorry, Allah enables us with the understanding of the correct approach to the Qur'an and Hadith. May Allah make us amongst those who follow in the footsteps of our elders and our teachers and the classical scholars. May Allah make us amongst those who do not interrupt and who do not dismantle and who do not disrupt this uninterrupted chain and tradition stretching back all the way to Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam and even after him through Jibreel alayhi salatu wasalam to Allah azza wa jal. May Allah make us amongst those who follow the Qur'an and Hadith with wisdom and with understanding and in the correct manner. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala enable all of us, every one of us, and I address myself first, to be more compassionate towards each other despite our differences and our disagreements. May Allah make us expand our minds. May Allah expand our bosoms to accommodate difference of opinion and to remain loving, caring and affectionate and compassionate towards each other despite that difference of opinion because that's what it is at the end of the day, difference of opinion and there was differences, there were differences of opinion even amongst the Sahaba anhum, even amongst the Prophets of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, Sayyidina Suleiman and Sayyidina Dawood alayhi salatu wasalam, both father and son, both being prophets, came to a completely different understanding of the same mas'ala in question. So differences of opinion have always existed, even amongst the Anbiya alayhi salatu wasalam. But that's not what should divide us. Rather, as long as there is a valid difference of opinion within acceptable parameters, then that difference of opinion should be viewed with uh, compassion, with understanding. And inshallah, this will reduce some of the bitterness and conflict and some of the illness that we are all prone to. I pray that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala unites our hearts and grants us this understanding. Wa sallallahu ala abdihi wa rasulihi nabiyyina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'een. Subhanakallahum alhamdik nashidu wa la ilaha illa anta nasafirak wa anta dhuyayah. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim.
there are a couple of questions here. Some of these questions have actually been answered uh, in... One of the questions in particular is about a certain part of Salah, which I've already covered in detail in my book, which is available, the Salah of Believing the Quran and Sunnah, so I would refer the questioner to that. There's a whole chapter actually, well, there's a whole section dedicated to that question. The one very important question, which is actually a uh, seeking of clarification of the principle I was explaining of a thousand from a thousand. Uh, I'll read the question. It says the act of majority not necessarily be right, may not necessarily be right. The saying of Imam Malik, a thousand of thousand, is applicable to the people of Medina at the time of the Prophet, or can be considered general statements. If later is right, if the latter is correct, then it will justify the creation of different sects in Islam. Authentic hadith conforming with Quran and contradicting general prevailing practices should have more weight. Please clarify. When I said a thousand from a thousand, I wasn't referring to today or even later from the time of the Sahaba and the Tabi'een and their Shi'is. This, this about thousands from thousands is specifically to do with the earliest generation when fiqh was first documented. So indeed, it does not refer to the later times, not forget today, not even uh, in the later times after the Tabi'een and the Tabra Tabi'een. Once fiqh was documented, it doesn't refer to the times after that. We are referring only to the initial stages in the beginning of Islam when many things were undocumented in written form, but were still documented orally and verbally. That's the time I'm referring to. This isn't a general statement. Of course, today, uh, if people are practicing something without doubt, we will look at the Quran, Hadith, and think in order to determine whether their actions are correct in light of all the Quran, Hadith, as well as Hadith. What are the views regarding women reciting Quran in their menses? The clear majority of the ulama, all the way from the classical fuqaha till today, are of the opinion that it is not permissible for a woman to recite complete verses of the Qur'an as recitation with the niyyah and intention of recitation during their menses. You know, some of these questions are actually about individual masail, and I prefer to actually answer questions related to the topic that we discussed today. So please, uh, otherwise we'll be here for quite long. So uh, since I've actually shortened my speech, I only want to answer questions in relation to that, rather than divert, digressing to many different topics. Uh, I'll answer just one final question, which is related to weak hadith, because obviously this, is, this would be related, that if we rely on the Qur'an and hadith, what's the position of the weak hadith? Well, the question is that, can weak hadith be used for virtues? For instance, the Fadail al-A'mal of Mona Zakariya, without doubt, the clear majority of the ulama have always held a view and have always opined that it's permissible to relate weak hadith, but with clarification. There are certain conditions that there are some red, there are some extensive conditions about weak hadith. As long as these conditions are met, and one of those very important conditions is that it's actually clarified that this is a weak hadith. So when it's clarified that this is a weak hadith, 
then it is permissible to relate, and not only to relate, but to rely on and to actually use and act upon these weak hadith when it comes to fadail. It's a very vast topic. In fact, I'll go, I'll say this much. There are some masail in all of the schools of fiqh, including in the fiqh of Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal, including the fiqh of Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal, who traditionally has been viewed as being more closer to the hadith, which is and which is an incorrect assumption. We cannot say this about the other imams that they were further away from the hadith. It's a completely incorrect assumption. But even about even in the fiqh of Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal, there are a number of masail. Not just in the fiqh of Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal, but in the fiqh of all of the imams of Ijtihar, these masail are actually dependent on weak hadith. So there are those weak hadith employed and used not just in fadail. Not just in virtues, but in actual laws and in actual teachings of faith. This lecture was delivered by Sheikh Abu Yusuf Riyad al-Haq and has been brought to you by Al-Qawthar Productions. For information on our products and services, please visit our website at www.akacademy.eu. We can also be contacted by phone on 0121-773-5191. Alternatively, you can write to us at AK Productions, PO Box 6008, Birmingham, B10-0UW, United Kingdom. All rights reserved for Al-Qawthar Productions and the author. Any unauthorized distribution, broadcasting, or public performance of this recording will constitute a violation of copyright.